everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Evolving Engineering and Construction Brands Podcast with your host, Matthew Winkelstein. And if this was the late 90s, you'd hear a beep, leave a message. That's because this is our voicemail. We're on summer vacation until Thursday, July 13th. You'll also notice that we're releasing episodes on Thursdays instead of Tuesdays. Expect new episodes from us beginning on Thursday, July 13th. Until then, we hope you all are having a fantastic summer. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Evolving ENC Brand Podcast. I'm joined by a very special guest, someone that has been a mentor to me, has been my boss. And I don't know if he'd let me say this, but someone that I consider a friend now, John Gribble. Thank you for being the first guest on our first episode of Evolving ENC Brands Podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Matthew. It's a pleasure. And yes, it, you, you can definitely consider me a friend if I can say the same thing. I think I think friends text each other about football games and things well beyond the professional interests. And you and I definitely engage in that between your team and my team. Absolutely. So, John, why don't you tell everyone where you live and who your favorite team is? Yeah, so I live in Kansas City, and so you can imagine that I'm a lifelong Kansas City Chiefs fan and have had some great years finishing with, I had the fortune of going to the Super Bowl in 2020. You can imagine hugging people and just congratulating people, and then I got the Wall Street Journal the next day, you know, that had Patrick Mahomes holding up the Lombardi trophy. And then right above the fold was China shuts down due to virus. And then shortly after that, you know, as you well remember, you know, we sent everybody home and we entered a new world order and stuff, which we're all still recovering from. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm a big Chiefs fan. I had actually forgotten about that part of the Catalyst event. And those of you who know me know I'm a Browns fan. So that's the only thing I can do is imagine what it's like when your team wins like that. But I do get to be really close to John and see how happy he is every week, which is juxtaposed to how I'm happy like three or four weeks out of the football season. So, well, and Matthew, you know, you know, I make a full day of it on game day because, you know, the tailgating and getting out there four hours before the game is just as much of the experience as the actual game itself. So I definitely make a sport of it myself. I, pre yeah. I appreciate that. And, and I know you haven't always had winning seasons either. So even more no, respect yeah. because you lived through what we lived through in Cleveland. Marty Schottenheimer years have scarred me just as much as other folks have in their seasons. All right. Well, we could do a sports broadcast probably on its own, but we should probably get into a little bit of what people tuned in here for. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your current position at Kiwit, and then we'll back into how you got in that position, how you got into business development and go from there. Yeah, sure. So I'm the senior vice president of what we call markets and strategy within Kiwit. The business represents a vertical within our organization. So water infrastructure is a vertical, just similar to transportation and power and oil and gas and so on. And each one of those verticals has a group of individuals led by a leader similar to myself that are both sales, marketing, proposals, and equally so what we call business line managers, which is essentially in our organization as the deal makers and the quarterbacks of the deals that sort of organize you know, not only the business development resources that are in the middle of the proposal, but also the engineering and the construction pieces that have to come together to pull a winning strategy together and that convince our clients, which in our cases, you know, water and wastewater utilities of the value that Kiwit will bring to their particular project in hopes that they'll select us for their 
hundreds of million dollars spend on water infrastructure. And, you know, some people in this industry are probably used to business development a little bit different too. Another thing that that you do and you've done in multiple areas in Keywit is shape how we go to market or how we did go to market at Keywit, where it's Keywit's been really good at this. And then you've right. come in and helped reposition parts of the business to be able to grow not only water, but power delivery and engineering services prior to that. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, each one of our markets across the spectrum has a different client set. It has a different evolution of how they've arrived at the buying journey, how they pick contractors, how they pick engineers, or how they pick a design builder as conglomerate group. And each of those require a different message, a different strategy, and how you deliver that message is critically important. For example, I'll contrast our transportation side that oftentimes deals with the DOTs in all 50 states. They each have their own personality, but they're fairly run by the state. They've got a process. They're building roads, bridges, light rail systems. And so it's fairly consistent in that. In the water space, I'm dealing with over 50,000 different water districts, and it could be water, it could be wastewater, depending on your community. Those individuals can be engineers that are on the staff, but oftentimes when it comes to the scale of projects we're doing, it's city commissioners, it's city council members, it's mayors and other stakeholders in the community. And how you might communicate to those individuals that during the day, they may be a high school teacher, they may be an insurance salesman, you know, and so they're not particularly conversant in the language of engineering and construction. They just know they need clean water or they need wastewater treated, or they need desalination or a new pipeline. Uh, and so where we spend our time, both internal and external, is helping shape the message such that it's easily understood what the value that we bring, and then attempt to persuade them to select us over our competition. And, and oftentimes in our space, that selection process can be dominated by your qualifications, your capability, how they feel about your team members, and many times less about the price. Not that price isn't a factor, but it's much more of a dominant factor in other markets. And so the compellingness and the persuasiveness of our argument needs to be pretty strong. And keep in mind, it's not always John Gribble out there, you know, up in front of every, you know, city commission meeting talking about Kiwit. It's our men and women that are involved out building the work. And they're taking off their hard hat and their safety vests and their boots before they walk into that interview room. And two years prior, they were building a project and they probably weren't presenting for 30 minutes. And so you've got to help them find what's the message they're trying to communicate and to get comfortable oftentimes with just, and that's just not true in some of our other markets. Not that they don't always have to do interviews, but we always have to. So that makes a compelling strategy there. And a little, and challenging, obviously, too, when you have people that are used to executing, there's a reason why they're in execution. And now in order for you to be able to win the project, you have to get more involved there in the beginning. An another thing that I appreciated when, with my time at Kiwit is it's, I found it to be a two-way street where Kiwit was very responsive to what the customers were saying, and then would change the business based on the customers at the same time where other organizations I've been in and worked with, it's more of a one-way street where it's, you're just trying to convince them that your way is the right way to do things. And what I appreciated with my time at Kiwit was learning how they took that information and said, okay, we're going to adjust the way we do things to meet the customer where they are. And I think you, and on top of other people at Kiwit, do a phenomenal job of that. Um, 
before we, I want to talk more about that specific market and just some of the things we've done together. But before that, we have a lot of young professionals that listen to this and they probably don't have the benefit of knowing you're actually an engineer. And so do you want to tell a little bit about how you got into business development? What interested you and tell us that great ski story? Yeah, I like to tell my wife, you know, I'm not the detailed one in the family. She's an engineer as well. You know, interestingly works at uh, Hallmark Cards and that's another story of how an engineer works for there. But how does an engineer get in business development? Um, I, I tend to say I'm not the detail-oriented, your typical engineer, though she does remind me I'm also the one that comes up with a very detailed itinerary for every family vacation. So message me if you need trips and detailed itineraries on former trips. I didn't always think, you know, when I came out of college, I'm a chemical engineer by background, was, you know, got into water and wastewater doing a couple of internships at Black & Beach, who is the previous organization I worked for prior to Kiwit for 23 years and had a great time there is that I was sort of unaware of the sales and this business development side in the engineering construction profession and happened to be an engineer on a power project up in Canada, about halfway between Calgary and Edmonton, which is in a town called Red Deer. And it was in the middle of this multi-billion dollar petrochemical facility and they needed a ready source of power and also a million pounds of steam per hour to operate in part of their expansion. Now, as part of that project scope, I, there wasn't really a lot of water treatment. It actually had been segregated out and given to another company. And so, but I had a project manager who had sort of taken me under my own, under his arm and I had expressed the desire to be mentored by him and, and things like that. And so we, I got to go to the two, you know, the two day, you know, client kickoff meeting in Banff at Lake Louise at this gorgeous, you know, Canadian Pacific, looks like Swiss Alps, if you can imagine. So if anybody wants to look up Lake Louise, you'll see what I mean. The first pictures that come up on Google. But so I was there for this two-day event and feeling a little sheepish because I only had a couple of small systems on this huge project. And I got to participate in this wonderful experience. And at the end of this partnering session with the client and with other key vendors, as well as ourselves, who were the EPC contractor, the design build contract, they gave us two choices. One choice was to go dog sledding, you know, which I had never done, but the other was to go skiing. And to go skiing up in the Rockies in Canada is like a whole nother experience. You know, I love Colorado and skiing, but the Rockies up in Canada, holy cow, those are beautiful. And it was right across from this Lake Louise and stuff. So I signed up for that. Well, the, out of like 60 people at this event, the only other person that signed up for skiing was the client and the one key guy that was whole contact for us for the company. So he and I spent the day skiing together. And in the course of up and down the slopes and, you know, riding the ski lifts, you know, for 10, 20 minutes at a time, I found out that water treatment scope that hadn't been included and been given to somebody else that they weren't really pleased with the outcome. And uh, I had explained, you know, my personal disappointment of not having it. And, and he sort of expressed, you know, well, I didn't realize maybe you guys did that. What would it cost to do that? You know, so we talked through it a little bit more. And by the end of the day, I had him convinced, you know, hey, we should maybe offer to, to take that off your hands and include it in our current scope. So, of course, I rushed back to my mentor and telling this with a little fear in myself of like, what have I just done? And instead of like, you know, the negative response, I got the very positive response, you know, of like, that's great. 
you know, that would be a tremendous addition. That'd be a great opportunity for you and for us. And so he walked me through the whole internal process to get the approvals. And we submitted something. The client said, that looks good. How about shape it like this? Back and forth. And ultimately, we added the scope to it. And, you know, they set it up as a separate EPC contract. So the project manager said, great, you sold it. You get to own it. And you're going to learn how to, to run projects of this scale. And it was a great experience. I actually lived with him for a year up in Canada, and he really was a tremendous mentor. And that was a pivoting point for me in my career. Because while I had enjoyed the engineering and even enjoyed the project management that I got out of that, I suddenly realized I thought that was really fun. I thought it was engaging of how to convince someone, to persuade them, to move them away from a decision they had made which I thought was a difficult thing in my mind, but seemed a very simple thing through the relationship I had established. And that got me on the journey because it convinced me I could do it. I found it fun and enjoyable. You know, quite honestly, I found it a little easy or easier than some of the engineering I was doing. And so I said, hey, you know, I want to pursue an opportunity. And through a series of me always keeping a sight on, hey, I want to do sales. What was I able to do that? And so through the course of my career, I've had multiple roles as a sales director in power, had a lot of success in that. That got me recognized to run nuclear engineering, which is, of course, where you send every successful sales guy to go run your nuclear engineering business. And then it afforded me an opportunity to expose me to Kiwit and their need to diversify their power business from just, you know, combined cycle power plants into solar, transmission, wind, water, other things. And ultimately, that's led to my current role. Now, in between there, to your point, you mentioned that I was president of our power delivery business, and maybe that speaks to, and I'll bring that up a couple of times, maybe as we talk through the brand of, you know, sort of internal and external factors of a brand. And that was my responsibility to do that before then taking on this role to lead what currently is about a $1.3 billion revenue business and grow us to a $3 billion business in about three years. So a heavy lift, but not one I think is challenging given the tools that I've got to work with here. Yeah. And one of the tools you talk a lot about is people. That's one of the things I appreciated about working for you and continue to appreciate about our relationship is you really focus on developing a good team, empowering them and holding them responsible for these lofty ambitions. I want to touch real quick on the business development thing again, because I think there's two things I took away from that. Number one, it sounded like you were focused on internal relationships before you realized the importance of external. And that allowed you to be able to take that risk and seize that opportunity because the people that you worked with internally trusted you to do that. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And, and as a person now responsible for business development and the professionals within it, I believe it fundamental to your success as a salesperson that you have to be just as successful in internal sales as you do external sales. And, and if you're not, that's not going to help you be successful on the external sale, simply because, particularly in our space of engineering construction, no one sells these things by themselves, right? And so you've got to have a lot of people behind you and shoulder to shoulder with you to make the kind of commitments necessary that a client's going to believe, yeah, they can handle my billion-dollar project, $100 million project, $5 million project, you know, and deliver it. Uh, so yeah, it, it, the the 
transition of internal to then external, while they're different in how you do it, that the skill sets necessary are all there. And I, it's important, right? I think it's overlooked and you obviously didn't overlook that in the beginning. Otherwise, they, you might've got the negative response. One last thing, and then I want to get into the brand stuff, but I just think this is, is so, so relevant for people that are listening to this, especially if they're earlier in their career transitioning. Were you always a good presenter? Or did that come naturally to you too? Because I know how hard you work at and I don't want people to think maybe you were naturally good at it, but I also know how much goes into preparation. And I think sometimes when people meet someone like you and you're very gregarious, articulate, they think, oh, he just wakes up and rolls out of bed and he's like this. And I know how much thought and effort you put into even an engagement like this, let alone a customer meeting. Well, if anybody knows, I don't start meetings before 8.30 because I feel like I'm a different person before 8.30. Kind of thing. So you, you always want to get the best giant gribble you can, and that's usually after 8.30. Uh, <laughs> but to, to your point, I probably could drive it all the way back to high school. And my parents were just adamant that I go into speech and debate. And I was just this scared kid to get up in front of anybody and talk. And, and thanks to them, I made that a whole career that ultimately the four years of high school we had uh, Mrs. Childs was like the absolute best debate coach. I think I was a sophomore. She had been there a couple of years and she was already sending seniors and juniors to nationals and stuff. She was that good. She got known in the Kansas City area and really being a strong coach. And so I was the benefactor of a lot of her coaching. And she just was very intense, you know, not in an unfriendly way, but in a critical, you know, confident way. And so she beat a lot of behaviors out of me and when you go to debate tournaments you know every weekend and i'm doing you know two-man lincoln or one-man lincoln douglas or two-man policy debate and and then friday nights i'm doing you know humorous interpretations you know which oftentimes i would play do the odd couple you know neil simon plays were some of my favorites and play multiple characters you just learn how to be effective communicator a lot of that. Oratory was one, you know, pick a topic to persuade people on. And I had no idea the lifelong effect that would have on me later in my career to make me successful at this, right? Because it's it's hard to convince people to, to get up and present or to just have a relationship with a complete stranger. And at the same time that you're engaging with folks, also have an internal monologue going of what are some of the questions I need to be asking in order to better strategize when we all get in a private room and we go like, what's the client thinking? What are their needs? What are their hopes? What's not in the RFP that they've stated so that we can properly persuade them and position ourselves in a winning strategy? And that's hard to do. But once you get into speech and debate for so long, you know, it's you develop that internal monologue because you begin to feed off of the crowd what they're doing and then change what you're saying to match you know, if people are shutting off or they're starting to look at their phones or things, in, in fairness, when I was doing debate in high school, we didn't have, you know, these things. <laughs> Captive phones. attention. Yeah, we didn't have an, even internet, unfortunately. Now I'm really doing myself. But, you know, there's still plenty of things for those of you that didn't get the experience in high school. You know, the, the Toastmasters, just getting up there and doing it often really helps you be successful and be a better speaker, you know, and so... To answer your question, no, have I always been good at it? No. My daughter hated me when I forced her into it. And now she's, you know, a a replica of myself where it doesn't scare her to get in front of a crowd. And that was really what I was after. Yeah. 
But even with that, even with that fantastic history and all that experience, you still put the time in to prepare. And so that's, you know, I see a lot of people think that once you're good at something, you're good at, especially a soft skill like this, and you don't see as many professionals treat it where it's, this is a skill. If it was athletics, it'd be like dribbling. If you're playing basketball, right? It's a core skill set that you need to have that makes everything else easier. And I appreciate not only your experience, but I know how much time, effort and preparation you put into these things. And I became a better presenter and speaker because of the conversations that you and I had leading up to big presentations. Yeah, you're exactly right. Big presentations. I've given presentations internally to Kiwit to, you know, a thousand person room and, you know, I'll, I'll practice for weeks ahead of that, refining my message, refining my slides, working out my physical location of where I'm at on stage in order to emphasize this and always Mrs. Shiles is coming back in my head telling me what to do when I'm doing this. But it, if I work all that stuff out in advance, when I get up there and maybe I mess up in, in terms of, I didn't say it exactly the way I had said it 20 times before, I still know where I'm headed and, and the messaging I need to deliver. And so it doesn't throw me off. Whereas if you're so rote, in it and you're really caught up in the nervousness of it, maybe because you just hadn't practiced enough to be that confident with it, you can get thrown off and you can get caught and lose your place. And that's embarrassing, you know, kind of thing. But the preparation, yeah, even for someone, you know, as, as you're quite pointing out, is, is comfortable in the presentation style, for sure do I practice. And I mean, you know, as you and I were talking before we started, I prepped for this call uh, and stuff, even though I know it's somewhat extemporaneous, there's still a fair amount of degree of prep that I only feel comfortable about, you know, with, with discussions like this that will be useful to not only you, but equally so your listeners, that they may find a nugget in there that's useful. And I want to make sure that I put the best foot forward and my preparation to help them gain something out of it. Yeah. Now our listeners really appreciate that as well as I do. And it's just that, you know, when you I, I think a lot of people look at executives and think like, oh, I can do that. And a lot of people probably can, but I think that people gloss over how much effort and how much practice goes into these soft skills that you've cultivated where they think it's automatic. So if you want to get to that level, if you want to try and to get to the same level that John's at, it doesn't happen on accident. It doesn't happen overnight. It's taking risks. It's practicing. It's showing up. And John does that fantastically. Obviously, that's why he's where he is. Well, you're too kind. Thank you. So now speaking of the phone, we got to switch gears a little bit, keep everyone interested. So before we get into brands in the ENC space, what's your favorite brand? You know, my favorite brand, I would have to say is Southwest Airlines. Now, I'm not a big fan of flying on Southwest, but when we put it in the context of brand for the sake of brand awareness and stuff, I just think when someone says Southwest Airlines, it hits so many facets of what you can say about it. You instantly understand the physical aspect of their business. Hey, you know, you're going to pick a seat, you're going to get in line, you know, you're going to get on board and it's going to be fairly efficient. It's going to be relatively, you know, reasonable price point. It used to be low cost. You know, these days it's hard to say what was low cost and airline travel. You know, you're going to get a friendly crew. You know, they're always going to be engaging, you know, the, the, they may even cut a few jokes during the start of it. They're going to be courteous with you as long as you are with. But there's also some internal aspects to it. You know, it's just they're generally clean planes. They're prompt with their food and their drink. You know, they're going to be respectful of you, but they're also going to encourage you to be respectful of others. 
there's just that bit about it. But there's also another bit that, that catches me, which is when brands are so clear that if you're a customer, you know what you're getting, but equally so if you're a prospective employee, you know what you're getting. Because while I've never applied to be, you know, a, 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 steward, a stewardess or a, a pilot or something like that on a plane, I would be able to articulate to someone what I think that experience would be. You know, hey, I, they seem really friendly. They seem very team oriented. You know, it, it, they're going to have your back as a employee, as well as, you know, educate you and get you up on processes and procedure. You know, and so... When you've got that full spectrum of a brand, I think like that's a great brand. Everybody can immediately identify that without ever having flown it, if you will, or drank it or ate it or used the services. You know, that that's what I think a brand sort of brings. To. Yeah, that's super interesting on that's super interesting on Southwest because I hadn't thought about what it means to the employees. But I, as you were saying that, I was immediately thinking like, I know what I would have to do if I went there. Show up with a smile, make sure you're positive with people. To your point, keep a light atmosphere, but then also control the chaos like they do that well. And I hadn't thought about those different levels. Um do you think that brands matter in our space and engineering construction? Do you think brands matter to customers? I think you have a really unique perspective on this because you've worked for two of the largest brands in this space, not only from a revenue standpoint, but from a legacy standpoint. So I'm curious, how do you feel like customers respond to brands? I think when you come into a room, and, and this is particularly true in my vertical within Kiwit, and I'll elaborate on this, but when you come into a room, a brand awareness serves the purpose of helping, you know, customers know what you're about. So it's almost like you've had a conversation already and you've made it so far into the value proposition. You know, hey, I, I know you guys drive, you know, yellow trucks with Kiwit on them. I know your job sites are always clean and meticulous because I've driven by them. You know, I know you're on time, you're on budget. You know, you, you also may be a little more expensive than others. That's an, another component of it. But, you know, the convincing of all of that together is what you have to do the next conversation, which is, well, why Kiwit in this particular instance? Why should we build your wastewater treatment plant? You know, what's the unique aspects that we bring in comparison to other competitors? I think that's a tremendous value. And so in my case, in the water vertical, as a national entity, what was so surprising to me was is how many clients didn't know who Kiwit was, you know, and, oh, I didn't know you guys did that, you know, and I was like, well, <laughs> we've been doing, you know, to us a bunch of it, you know, for decades. And yet, you know, 50,000 customers, if you will, are entities. And each one of them, let's just say, has at least five people. You know, that's a lot of people that need some awareness. And I can't, you know, I don't have limitless sales professionals, you know, I have six people going out knocking on doors. That's not a whole lot. And so brand helps you have those conversations before you arrive on the scene. And if you don't have it, then there's some strategies you need to employ to, you know, I'm not going to change Kiwit's brand, right? You know, I'm not going to go, hey, in water, we're going to have blue trucks kind of thing. But from, I'm going to leverage that brand awareness so that people understand what does that mean in the context of the water space and that the brand is not about only the external, but it's also about the internal. And the internal means what am I as the client gonna get when I use this brand? You know, how am I going to feel? You know, if you go into a Starbucks 
versus a Dunkin' Donuts, you, you might feel differently. You might characterize those experiences differently. And so the same can be said of whether you choose Keywood or you choose another entity. You know, we all have dozers and trucks and cranes and we buy lots of concrete and things <laughs> like that. But it's how you experience that or how you're going to experience that that can matter to clients. You know, are you going to be difficult to work with? Are you going to change order me to death? Are you going to be involving me in every step, even though you're the one responsible for design and construction? I still want to pick the colors. You know, I still want to choose the drapes or, you know, whatever it is. That's fine. It matters when we choose the colors, right? Don't choose them after I've already painted it once. But it's up to me to walk you through that process and how you experience that with me may better fit how you perceive what you want out of a contract when you pick them. When, so the keyword not being as well known in the water space, do you attribute that to the how disjointed the water market is because of the way that the leadership is the way you described previously? Or do you think it's simply it's an adjacent market and those markets don't necessarily communicate so the brands aren't as well known outside of the people that care about them? Yeah, I, I would probably would agree with all of the above, but predominantly towards the end. So, so you know, while Kiwit is very well known in the transportation space, you know, you've also got 50 DOTs plus, you know, let, let's expand that into special agencies and federal organizations that also do that stuff. But, but a much smaller client subset, if you look at electric utilities that buy power plants and that may be solar, wind, gas, coal back in the day, again, you know, the, the, there may be a thousand electric utilities and, you know, I can, I can count the really big ones on both hands and maybe a few, you know, toes. But when you get into the water utility business, you know, it's just all over the, and the customers are very diverse. Whereas, you know, in the DOTs, they're very monolithic. Texas admittedly is different than New York, but how and what they do is very monolithic. Whereas in the water treatment space, you know, the roles that people play that are making the decisions, let me say that, are very different. You know, the city council members, some of them make it a full-time job. Some of them, city council meetings at night and during the day, they're all those different jobs, including, you know, stay-at-home parents. Uh, kind of thing. And so you've got a very mixed bag and you have to translate that so that if they're not aware of the brand, they're going to be aware of it through how you carry yourself, how you present, what you say, you know, that's going to matter. So a, a lot's changed in the last 20 years, call it. How do you go about building a brand now in the engineering construction space? Obviously, Keywood has the legacy brand, but you've almost had to build brands, not from scratch necessarily, but you had to be able to interject the established Keywood brand into each market that you started to grow. So how do you feel like growing a brand has changed and how do you think that continues to change here in the future? Yeah, there, there's a couple of, so, so maybe I'll take a step back and sort of define, you know, a little bit of the brand is that, you know, oftentimes we can sort of say, hey, there's the big logo and the colors and look and feel of it. You know, that for sure is one piece of it, but it's a very small piece of it. It's just what all of these other things sort of link to, that when you see it, when you see a Coca-Cola symbol, you know, crisp, refreshing, cold, right? You know, or you see Southwest and it's going to be fun, you know, low cost, gets you there kind of fair, you know, or Starbucks as well, right? We can all pinpoint those kind of things. 
But there was a guy, as a professor uh, named Don Noel Federer, he's a, a, a Parisian, and it had this sort of brand identity prism, and that there were six facets to it that sort of talked about the physique and the relationship and the reflection. But it was also this, what's the sender of information? So sort of you as the provider and the recipient, you know, in this case, the customer, and then both the external and the internal pieces of it. And, and so th there's some of that when you say building a brand, particularly, you know, as a marketing and sales professional inside an engineering and construction organization. And I know I lump those together. Those that are listening are maybe one or the other or both here is there are certain aspects you're not going to change. I'm not, like I said, I'm not going to come into Kiwi and I'm going to change. Hey, instead of, you know, gold trucks with black lettering and I want blue or, Hey, you know, let's spend the less focus on safety and more on our price point or something. But those are pieces, the brand we're not going to change kind of thing. And I'll liken it back to my previous role as the president of our transmission engineering and construction business. And we had two components. We had an engineering component that did self-performed engineering. And we also had a construction component. And at the time, when I was asked to take that over, those two groups weren't talking to each other. They weren't functioning together. The engineering just referred to themselves as engineering. The construction group actually called themselves transmission partners. They had a different logo. They had a different color. You know, it was like, totally off from what I just said. Hey, don't change this stuff. This is what you rely on to gain access to the market. And you have a lot of value, you know, for us and the Kiwit brand. Don't, you know, those are table stakes. Don't leave them there. Use them. And so these two groups weren't even working together. And so the previous leader had left. I was asked to step in and sort of heal this up and get us on a trajectory of growth. And while we accomplished that, it's it goes back to what you said. It was like, get great people on there, empower them to be successful, really drive their confidence in it. And, and I did really simple things. I made them all sit on the same floor together. You know, I, anytime somebody said transmission partners or those guys referring to the engineers or the constructors, they had to put a dollar in the jar and that went to the happy hour fund you know, kind of thing. And if they wore a t-shirt or a hard hat with a logo on it, they got a new one that said Keywood Power Delivery. And I'd say in nine months, no one knew who the engineers and the constructors were. And, and in a year, they didn't even care because they were also having this success where they had made it in with AEP, the largest owner of transmission, you know, assets in the United States, Intergy and a couple of other clients. And they were really getting a backlog of, 250 millions about when I handed it over had, had, you know, achieved success in it. And as I was asked to take on this water roll. And so we had the $250 million backlog. We had clients that were long returning, you know, reoccurring contracts that were just purchase orders off of them. And it felt good. And it was all in building that brand. And it wasn't the external. It was accepting the external. We're going to be Kiwi. We're going to say power delivery just so they know what segment, but we're going to be keyword. It's going to be black and gold. We're going to have clean job sites. We're going to be safe. We're going to maintain our process controls and things like that. And where I focused on, you know, so I accepted the, the external pieces and I said, that's what we're relying on. And then the internal component was, hey, we're all going to be together. We're not having different groups. We're going to always trust each other, utilize each other. We're going to reward 
you know, proper behaviors. And, you know, it was a total meritocracy. Whereas before it was highly competitive and, you know, people would try to gain traction over another. And it just wasn't a cohesive internal culture. And clients see that, you know, I mean, it's as much as you want to try to hide, you know, folks in the closet that, that, you know, you don't want to put in front of clients, you can't, you know, especially when you're in the high touch industry, like we are, where as soon as you get a project, all those folks are out there on the job. And so that culture has to exude beyond that. And so it's just like when you go into a Starbucks and you know, hey, it's going to be clean. It's going to feel like a premium experience. You're going to have a quiet place to sit. You know, it's just the same way I want you to walk on a Rakiwa job, so that whether it's a road job or a power job or a transmission job or a water job, you instantly know this is a Rakiwa job. Yeah. And so it was that kind of thing that, that, you know, is where I think helps you grow and be cohesive through brand identity. I really appreciate that answer. I'm going to expound on it in a second. We'll wrap up here after this. The last question I'm going to ask you is what's your best routine or habits? You can start to think about that a little bit. Sure. What I really appreciated about your answer is just how important you believe brand is and how you go about building it. So when, when people hire me or they think about hiring me, one of the things that I get asked consistently is, well, hey, can you do some of the stuff you did at Keywit for us? And my answer always is, yeah, if you operate like Keywit, I can. But if you don't, it's not, that's not going to work. It might work once or twice, but you're not that. Marketers call those brand builders. I'm a brand communicator. I can't build a brand. I have to distill what the brand actually is and then communicate it to in the right way and then distribute it to the right people. And people don't always understand that. They want to do everything where it's, hey, marketing, let's do a great job of building this brand. And your brand is really an extension of the things that you actually do on a day-to-day basis. And so when I asked you that question, you went right into what you did from a team cohesion standpoint, from a team building standpoint, and then leveraging the existing things that were already there from a creative standpoint. But it was a lot more like, hey, if we build our internal brand by building our internal team, all this other stuff becomes a lot easier. And that's what people really care about. And I don't think people think about brand in that way all the time. So I really appreciate that perspective. No, that's fair. And, you know, to give you some accolades, you know, you've got a great process and you continue to help me and my organization, you know, still as we're in the water space and we've got different challenges, right? Because it's more about the process and the tools and the market that you're dealing with. And I think you do, and you use a great word, distilling those elements so that irrespective of whether you're Keywit or you're some other company, that you and your team have just a great process to be able to help shepherd people through that dialogue and make the brand that they need to the best that it can be to help achieve their market objectives and to communicate with their clients and their customers about the value they bring to the marketplace. I really, I thank you so much for those kind words. You know, I'm a big fan of yours for sure. (laughs) I appreciate that. Like I said, you've helped me develop a lot and I, uh, we've gotten to work on a lot of fun stuff. You know, you had mentioned before that your Super Bowl experience, I was on the other side of that of, okay, we can't go visit customers. Now, what do we do? And, uh, you were the first one to give this crazy person an opportunity to do digital sales. And then that grew from there. And it's, uh, it's been, it's been a lot of fun getting to know you over these last handful of years. The person that introduced us, I thank him every time I talk to him because I was like, thank you so much that introduction. It's completely changed everything for me. So I appreciate it. So let's wrap up here with our favorite question from the last series we had of what's your best routine or habit? You know, as much as I joke about mornings aren't my thing, you know, I have a routine of I make my own coffee and I grind it and 
I read the Wall Street Journal, you know, because in the position that I have is about strategy and, you know, world affairs and political affairs domestically and stuff like that, because they all have an impact on our business, whether we're buying cement and there's difficulty getting it out of Turkey or those kind of things. That's maybe a little bit easy to talk a little bit about myself. Here, here's the one that I think for your listeners that might be more useful, right? So you do need personal routines to sort of help your rigor, but as a leader and particularly as a sales leader responsible for strategy and recognizing, hey, I go through this routine to learn more about it. One habit that I have that I think is my best routine is one-on-ones with all of my direct reports mm. and stuff. And it's, you know, and I have it with my executive assistant, we've got them all scheduled out, you know, and I'm always a huge believer on if it's not on the calendar, it ain't going to happen. If it's on the calendar, we can always move it right? Hey, I had some conflict come up. Great. Where are we moving into, you know, kind of thing. And there's so much that comes out of that from just a personal relationship, you know, and you and I used to do this too. And folks don't necessarily, I don't think realize it's purposeful on my part because it gives them an opportunity to hold their thoughts until we get together. And then we're both arriving with a list. Hey, what's on your list? Well, what else do you have? Oh, I've got that on my list. And, and we go through it and we develop a cadence where not only do I know you personally, but I know you professionally. And my role as a leader is to help get the impediments out of the way, right? Because like I said at the beginning, you know, my leadership strategy is to cultivate great teams. I want everybody on my team better than me. I want them all really top performers. And so when you have those and you also live in an organization as big as Kiwix, you know, the, the machine is going to create impediments. You know, maybe there's something with CorpCon or there's something with how we buy things or maybe there's, you know, something else with how we're delivering a project. And it's my role to keep all those hurdles out of their way and to let them be the best people that they can be. And I can't see those hurdles coming if I'm not talking to them, you know, and and. If, if I'm taking the time to think through strategy and what works best for us and I can communicate to those to them, particularly as we're building brand and we're trying to grow as quick as we can, those are some big challenges and you can't do it without one-on-ones. And I think there are too many people, particularly in leadership positions, that fail to see the value and that that's fundamental to developing your people, to making them effective, giving them the tools to feel supported for sure, right? And you as a leader to just understand where are the issues at. Otherwise you're just trusting your own perspective. And that's a single point. Yeah. I can, I've, I can definitely say I've worked for other good leaders or people I've learned from. And I, I would say, Hey, this is a, a really good leader. So I, it's not like I have never worked for a good leader before, but you're the first leader I worked for that was so intentional about that to where you have the thing. Other thing I like about it is you make sure you have those Whatever the frequency is, you establish a frequency with your with each direct report, and then it changes over time too. When we were more busier, we were meeting more often. When we were working on stuff where I didn't need as many roadblocks, that decreased. And you are constantly, you not only made sure it happened, but you moderated it to where it makes sense. Where I've seen it not go as well is maybe you have a time slot set up and a frequency and you just leave it at that. And then the meetings become not as useful, but you keep it on the calendar and keep using it. You're like, wait a second, does this need to be 30 minutes instead of an hour? I think we only have, let's go 30 minutes. Let's go every other week. It's like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. I appreciate that. And you meticulously do that with everyone you report to. And I know that's something I took away as 
uh, as I grow a team and get back into leadership, something that I plan on incorporating into uh, my leadership style and process. So appreciate you showing me that way. Yeah, no, I'm happy to do it. All right, John, I appreciate you sharing all this great information with our guests. Thank you for everything uh, you've done for me and engaging perspectives in the podcast. I'm excited for everyone to hear this. And I'll say this only this time because this is the last year the Browns aren't going to be good. Go Chiefs. Thank you, Matthew. I purposefully left my copy of the Lombardi out of the background just so that, you know, you didn't have to struggle with that. <laughs> I, listen, I'm not, I'm not a hater. I'm happy for you. I love it. Hey, thanks for having me on the podcast and stuff too. It's it's a distinct honor to, to be your first one in the, the rebranding of this. And, you know, thank you for all you continue to do and you've done for us so far. It's been great. Thank you very much, John. Hope everyone tunes in next week. Till then, have a great one.